Watching at home, DCK Productions proudly brings to you the greatest podcast in the world. Oh, the greatest podcast in the world? Suck it. No, you suck it. No, you suck it. No, you suck it. No, you suck it. I appreciate it if you both suck it. Suck it. We really should stop this fighting. Otherwise, we'll miss the fireworks. There won't be any fireworks. And here we go. And welcome, everybody, to. Suck it! I am the great and powerful king of kings. Prince of all that is awesome. Derek, how the fuck is everybody tonight on this Friday night, September 18th of the year 2020? Closing out another fantastic week on this show. I've had a fellow podcaster on this week and you know, a bunch of musicians and closing it out, you know, with another legendary musician as well. So, you know, I could not be more grateful for the awesome week and the awesome things that this show has provided for you guys and for myself. So thank you very much for being here on the top 20, one of the top 25 podcasts in the world, 500,000 people and growing. So thank you very much again for being here. So Y'all want to know who I got tonight? Well, of course you do. You already know who I got because you clicked on the link or whatever else, saw my post, whatever. But I have the legendary guitarist for the Steve Miller Band, Mr. Kenny Lee Lewis with me. Hey, how are you, sir? I'm doing great. Good. I can't I'm... believe you got a half a million people uh, watching you right now. That's, that sounds pretty impressive. Over the course of the next couple of weeks, it will be a total of half a million, yeah. Ah, Okay. Yeah, so it's great. Uh, I've been recording guitars all day long with one of the uh, writers that actually wrote um, Wild Mountain Honey on the Greatest Hits album for Steve Miller. He's here walking out my studio and giving me some, some work, which is nice since we're not touring. And, yes. Uh, so I've been under the headphones all day with a guitar, so I'm kind of deaf, but that's why I had to run up and put my hearing aids on. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, after so many years of, uh, you know, being a guitarist, touring and stuff like that, it's bound to happen. Yeah. You know? No shame in that game. Yep. Thanks for being patient. Yeah. So thanks for having me on. This is gonna be fun. No, it's it's my pleasure, man. It's you know I, I'm I'm trying my damnedest at 40 years old not to fanboy out right now. So uh. you know, because <laughs> you know, um, I mean, even in you know in the 90s when I was growing 80s and 90s when I was growing up, I mean, you know, the Steve Miller Band and you know that that classic rock sound from the 70s and 80s you know, was a huge part of my childhood, you know, wow. and, um, you know, and you guys were on the forefront of that. So, you know, and you've been around, you know, the Steve Miller band since 82. 
And I was born in 81, so, you know, it was, it, it, it's, it's in sync with my life, man. That was the very year that I met Steve. He uh, yeah. was calling looking for material in around September of 81. When's your birthday? April 9th. Okay, so you're already a, a Bambino, a mere Bambino. But when, I was got, when we got the call, uh, I was co-writing with uh, Gary Malibur, his drummer that had played on all his hits. And we had been uh, going for a record deal of our own after doing a couple of records with a guy named Gerard McMahon. And we had about eight songs in the studio, and that's when Steve called looking for material, and that was right in 81. Wow, that's amazing. And then you've been with him ever since? Well, except for a short period of time, you've been with him ever since. So, Yeah, you know, I'm, I, off and on, I mean, he, he had some breaks, too. I mean, there was a break between 87 and 93 that I took to raise my first kid, and he was kind of out trying to promote a jazz record that he had done with a different band. Mm -hmm. And... It never really took off, the record that is, but the greatest hit CD that I just mentioned exploded as a compact disc, if you remember. When those came out, it was like a big deal. You know? It was, yeah. So everybody started buying records again on compact disc, so he, he had great sales, and then he had younger people like yourself that were becoming fans, and he had a whole new audience to play to. So that was kind of cool. So I came back in 93, and, and I've been with him ever since. Wow. Again. I was with him from 81 to 87, and then from 93 on. That's just amazing to me. I mean, you know, anytime I talk to, uh, you know, a legendary, you know, or someone's been in the business for as long as you have, it, it just, you know, astounds me because that business is so cutthroat. And it is yeah. so, you know, it is so fly-by-night with some of these artists. And to have any longevity, you know, these days um, is difficult. Um, so, you know, talking to somebody that's been around it since, you know, before I was born is, you know, again, it's, it's just a huge compliment because it's just, you know, everybody, you know, will, you know, not be a lot of people can't handle it and they just go away from it. Well, a lot of the surviving I did was not on stage. I mean, I had to get into the other uh, aspects of the music business, too. I got into uh, designing and uh, training on different guitar and amplifiers. I worked for different you know, manufacturers. I even worked for Guitar Center, and we became a manager in Hollywood with Dave Weiderman, who did the, you know, the rock walk there and everything. I mean, I, I've, I've done a little bit of everything. Mm. And you just keep moving on because you can't necessarily depend on the income that you make from your art to, you know, to buy the bacon and take care of your kids and pay the rent. So you got to do just about every aspect, which I did. And I, of course, I taught too. I taught lessons. And, you know, you do whatever you got to do to survive. And so uh, I always highly recommend to everybody just learn every angle of the music business if you're going to go into it, including publishing and singing. That's another part a lot of people forget about. Yeah. I mean, especially these days, because it's so hard to make money in the business. You know, I, I've said it till I'm blue in my face. Um, but like, you know, Spotify, if you have a million downloads, it's only you're only making 5000 bucks. And that's one to two percent that's hitting that. Um, and so you're making money on touring. So if you're not touring like we are right now, what else are you doing? And there's there's so many avenues that you can take. So it's it's all about keeping your horizons open. Yeah, I'm probably, I, I'm not very good with the tech thing, and I'm not really good with the internet thing, but I'm learning, and I'm hiring a younger guy to come over and train me, and he's been helping me get my YouTube channel together, which I'm just about ready to uh, relaunch. I have a YouTube channel now, Kenny Lee Lewis on YouTube, you know, and I got, you know, probably about 75 subscribers or something, but I've never really worked it, you know, so now I'm going to start, you know, doing a lot of masterclass 
teaching performances, you know, even cooking things and luthier, you know, installing pickups and philosophy and, you know, you name it, you know, fishing. <laughs> we talk about fishing. So I'm just going to have to start my own TV network while we're waiting to go back out on the road and just kind of reinvent myself. But I need training because, you know, I'm not really savvy at it. Yeah, it's it's not easy. I mean, I do it full time for a living and I still struggle with it sometimes, you know. So I, I hear you. I hear you. So um, like great. You got a, a nice big following. I'm I'm really happy for you. Yeah, I mean the following, which I still find strange, and I I don't understand it, and maybe I just you know never will understand it. Is you know my YouTube following when I'm live is not very big at all, but yet my the podcast itself is is a lot more popular, and I don't understand why they don't click together. Um, maybe it's because it's, a, you know, sometimes I go an hour and a half, two hours and nobody wants to sit on their phone or watch YouTube for that long on the same channel. Um, but they'll listen to it in their car on the way to work and come home. And that's all I really care about. <laughs> that's good. Yeah. I mean, the YouTube audience is really, really hard to capture and it's really, really hard to, you know, finagle that. Um, and if you can find a, a clear path with that, that's fantastic. Um, yeah. but I, I had to branch out. That's great. Well, I'm glad you did. Well, I appreciate that, you know, that um that compliment there. So let's talk about you for a second here. So you um you guys are hoping to go back on the road. I mean, you know, with everything that's been going on, you know, I'm here in twenty twenty two for some of these things. You know, what are you guys hoping for? Well, the boss is not seen next year as a viable year. Um for whatever reason, he uh he's being very pessimistic. He doesn't really see the vaccine coming very soon. Anything that he would take, that is. Um, he's talking more like 2023, <laughs> Wow, which is going to be way off and he's already, you know, pushing 80, you know, so that's, that's tough. You know, it's like, like the Rolling Stones, you know, it's like, that's, that's out there. So I'm hoping that there will be a vaccine, of course, by the spring and that there will be plenty of people to try it. And, uh, like a canary in the coal mine, Steve will be watching that. And if he feels comfortable, he'll take it. And then, of course, if he feels confident about it, he'll get a, the, the band and the crew to do it. And then, but then we have to wait for the promoters to cut loose. You know, uh, being able to open up venues. You know, the venues have to open. The promoters got to be able to promote. You know, so until the venues open, that have us come and play. The only thing we can really do is do these uh, virtual streams. And uh, I just did one last Saturday at a really nice place here where I live in San Luis Obispo. There's a microbrewery in town here that built a really nice stage, uh, big screen in the back and everything, smoke, fog, lights, you know, the whole bit. We did a nice show, and the people uh, were out on the patio, and they were watching on TV out there, but they couldn't come into the room with us, but they really enjoyed it, and we had, you know, what, 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 I guess you consider it sold-out patio because uh, they can't even allow people to, you know, come into their place. Yeah. And I'm doing another one in about a week uh, with, um, I don't know if you know, Scotty Page from Pink Floyd and some yep. of those other people, Greg Bissonette, Reggie McBride. I got all these people that are playing with me on a show we're going to stream out of Pennsylvania, and we're doing that for the State House there, uh, are, are all friends of mine. So it's their pack and fundraiser for, for their state. So uh, we're going to be doing that in Rock Lidditz, which is in Lancaster County. I don't know if you know about Rock Lidditz, but it's mm -hmm. an amazing hub of the touring business for uh, musical touring. I don't know why it would be out there, but for some reason... There's a bunch of great big sound stages out there, sound companies, lights, 
they train people. They've got music stores everywhere, and a lot of big bands go there, and uh, you know, sort of uh, try their their live shows out, like U2, Katy Perry, people like that, before they go out. And so that's where we're doing this. So that should be fun. But I'm going to document it all. And, and so to answer your question, I'm hoping that I can show Steve how we're doing it, and, and still staying in compliance with our distancing and our masks and everything, but still being able to use a you know four camera handheld shoot. And, you know, have smoke lights, you know, big giant big screen in the back with lights and action and, and, you know, maybe coerce people into, you know, buying a ticket, you know, and uh, tuning into a live broadcast for that. Because that's about the only thing we can do for now. So, yeah, that's where we're at. Yeah. I mean, um, I know a lot of bands, um, bands that I like have done the live stream thing. Um, a really a really popular band out of uh, Orlando area, uh, Trivium, they did one. Um, out of full sale in Orlando not too long ago. They ran out of soundstage and put a full effect concert on um, through live.org, I think is what it was. And it was, it turned out really well. I mean, I know a lot of other bands are doing it as well. And, or, you know, they're using the platform Twitch or whatever else the case might be. But it's, it, it, it's viable. Um, you just got to, you know, do it, you know. And the fans are begging for it too. Right. And Steve has a huge fan base. And because that is built in, that is, you know, a way to really, really, you know, take advantage of that because he has, like you say, people that are just ready and willing, you know, to to buy a ticket just to watch the show, mm -hmm. whether whether or not they're going to be happy with the virtual 2D part of their flat screen or what we suggest is maybe, you know, a promoter, you know, rent out a, a theater or a hall and have their own private party. Now, depending on state for state, you know, you have to figure out how many people you can have. Correct. Uh, so maybe it'd have to be outdoors, you know, or at a drive-in, like a lot of bands would do drive-in theaters, which is interesting because it is outdoors. Yep. So all those things are viable. So we'll just have to see. But in the meantime, I'm doing sessions. I'm writing. I'm, you know, I'm working on other stuff. I'm, I'm, you know, working around the house, doing gardening, growing vegetables, cooking for the family. You know, it's it's been fun, and uh, it's it's not a terrible thing that I'm able to be home for the summer, but. Uh, the income is the issue. So. Yeah, I can definitely understand that. And like you said, the drive-in thing is really cool too. I haven't attended one yet because um, there hasn't been much in my area. We have a drive-in, you know, not too far from us, but they haven't really done much with it yet. Um, I know a lot of comedians are doing the same thing as well. Um, it's a, it's, it's, you know, it's a, one, another viable option. You know, it's just, um, it, it sucks because you know, usually around this time every year. You know, the festivals start getting announced for the following year with Danny Wimmer Presents and all that other stuff. And, you know, they're staying pretty quiet. So it's like, yeah, maybe, you know, 21, you know, 2021 is not going to be a viable year. So it's, it, you know, it, it's, it's scary to think about that, especially with the music wow. business, because it's going to be the last to recover from it all. I mean, Justin Bieber and other acts and stuff, they're all booked for next summer, but that doesn't mean they're going to be able to do it. But you know they're planning on it and you just have to wait to see if the venues are going to be you know allowed to do it without having any repercussions of god knows what i mean whether it be uh law enforcement enforcement or whether it be protesters i mean you know you don't want to have your rock show picketed by mask lovers because they're going to you know make it a really a bad scene for yeah, and that's not the type of bad publicity anybody wants. You know, and when I say mask lever, I wear a mask all the time. I'm not opposed to it. So oh, yeah. I'm just saying the ones that are real adamant about watching every single thing you're doing. You know? Yes. Oh, you know, those you, ones. Those, those are the, the Karens that I enjoy watching on my show occasionally. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
I so, imagine a pretty broad audience with a name like Suckett. You've probably got everybody from both sides of the of the fence watching you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, because I usually stay um, apolitical. I usually talk shit about both sides of everything. Um, well, me too. I'm a progressive, so yeah. I don't like to use that. Yeah, I mean, the the whole idea behind the Suckett podcast is, you know, once people start watching and you know and understand it, it's it's a it's a it's a play off of the phrase "suck it up," um, because you know it's a mental health thing. Um, because I have bipolar disorder and uh, severe anxiety. And, you know, for the longest time as a kid growing up, as a, being a boy or a man, you know, you're not allowed to have depression and stuff like that. So you always get told, ah, suck it up, drink some whiskey, drink a beer, you'll be fine. So, hence the name, suck it. Oh, so not suck it up, but just suck it. Correct. <laughs> That's yeah. your response to them when they say suck it, if you say, Ex- hey, Exactly. Suck it. <laughs> hey, suck you hit the nail on the head. If they tell me to suck it up, I tell them to suck it. it it's exactly, you hit the nail on the head, man. <laughs> um, I actually owe credit to my wife for it because she's actually the one who came up with it. But uh, it, well, it's it, great. It definitely gets your attention. Oh, it def- definitely, definitely does. I did an interview with a guy yesterday. His show was called Smoke Meats. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard of him, yeah. That had a long story behind it, but you just stayed with the name. It works. Yeah, when I first heard it, I'm like, what is this about? So, um, prior to getting um, with uh, Steve Miller, um, for those who don't know, I mean, what were what were you doing at that point in time back in the before then? Well, I moved from Sacramento down to LA in 1973 because I had a family that I had done some music with in Sacramento, who had some brothers that were doing very well in Los Angeles as studio musicians and engineers. And so they sort of brought me in and I went down there and I wanted to become a studio musician because I did read. I played in the college, you know, stage band, but I was always in psychedelic blues bands and everything because I grew up, you know, an hour from San Francisco during the hippie days and Fillmore and all that stuff. So I had that and then I had the reading thing. And then I just liked the whole idea of going into a different place every day and recording some different music for different clients. And I just thought it would be really fun. They had a really strong union back in those days. The, the uh, you know, the efforts were pretty good. So I moved down there to be a studio musician. So I did achieve that. And so uh, I was doing very well with that at the time when Steve uh, called looking for material in, uh, in 1981, as I would mentioned earlier. And um, I had already had three record deals at that time and none of them had done anything. Um, and we had about eight songs in the can that Gary and I and a guy named John had written. And um, and also Lonnie Turner was involved on some of those songs. Uh, he was the bass player. who was a uh, you know played on all of Steve's you know first uh, you know seven or eight albums I guess. Um, so when Steve called looking for material, um, he ended up taking all eight of our songs. And he loved them so much that he even took our masters. We recorded them on a 80-8 TAC with DBX, and it was clean, and it was the same machine that was used on. Uh, the Eurythmics first record, you know, Free Trains and all that stuff. So he transferred that to 24 track. I played bass and guitar on all those demos. And so when he transferred the masters, I was already on the record because he wanted to keep all the parts. But I was a studio bass player at that time. Use, you know, that was what was getting me the most work. Not because I didn't play guitar well, but it's just there wasn't as many good, good bass players. So I got more work on bass. And then sometimes I'd overdub guitar on those things. But other times I'd just play the bass. So I really didn't know when I came, when he invited me to join the band and we were doing the album cover photo shoot for the Albert Cadaver album, I thought I was going to be the bass player. So it's pretty funny. I get there and I meet this black guy 
who I hadn't seen through all the sessions at the Capitol we were doing. And I said, uh, what's your name? He goes, well, my name is Gerald. And I said, well, are you like a percussionist or something? <laughs> you know, I, I thought I was the bass player. He goes, no, buddy boy, I'm the bass player. And I went like, really? <laughs> so Steve's getting his makeup on, you know, he's got his eyes closed and everything. And I just met the guy, had not been a couple months before. And I go, um, Steve, what am I playing in this band? And he went like, oh, you're going to be a guitar player. And I went like, really? <laughs> I said, okay. I said, I don't have much gear. I'm not really prepared to go out on the road playing guitar. He goes, don't worry about it. We'll, we'll get you a bunch of gear. And sure enough, he did. And then he put me on guitar. So that was that was pretty interesting how that all went down. But I was a studio bass player prior, and I was a double scale guy, and I was working on a lot of stuff. I was doing like, you know, Rocky movie soundtracks and commercials and playing on, you know, Eddie Money Records and, you know, B.B. King, Denise Williams. I played some Dusty Springfield stuff. Um, all kinds of different uh, stuff at that time it was a lot of pop music. Not a lot of rock guys. You know, maybe Dave Mason I did some stuff for. Um, but it was, and Billy Burnett, who later got in Fleetwood Mac, I was uh, playing with him live and recording with him. So I was, I was doing a lot of different stuff back then. But when Steve came along, it was pr primarily a studio bass player. That's awesome. Um the the whole idea of the uh, the studio musician you know is fascinating to me. Um, I talked to Leland the other day, yeah, and um, you know I mean, he's just got a you know storied career like you, yourself does. Oh, I know. But um, you know, being in a band for forty years, fifty years, you know, you say for instance like him being on a band, you know, if you're in a band for fifty years like Rolling Stones, you can only make so many albums. But as a studio musician, you can be a part of so many. And like him, you know, 2,500 albums he's been a part of. Yeah, and you're, you're doing something every day. You exactly. Know, limited to one thing, you know. Exactly. And plus with all the different people that you get to collaborate with. Oh, I mean, yeah. that's, you know, so I mean, yeah, definitely going the studio route is, you know, a lot of people's dream because you just, you're meeting somebody new every day. And that's just awesome. Right. And unfortunately, those days are gone. And I mean, now it's just a handful of guys that, you know, never could get their look together or get along with people in a band that are the ones that stayed in town that, that do a lot of the dates that read music. There's just a handful of guys. There's not very many people left doing it because there's not a lot of work. Yeah. Most of the bands that are out there today are usually self-contained. They write their own material. They go get a producer and the producer helps them write the material. Uh, they, they play on their own tracks uh, with the exception of maybe a couple of hired bands here and there. But, you know, most of them, you know, are playing on their own stuff because the demand to have such an excellent rhythm section, you know, on the tracks and everything, it's not such a big deal anymore. It's like uh, the new, you know, X-Gens and Millennials. They like bands that are kind of, you know, garagey and not perfect and, you know, have character, you know, and they don't, they're not trying to make these perfect sounding records anymore. Yeah. Uh, which all I got to do is listen to them and the evidence of, is, is apparent, you know, that they're not substandard, but they're just different. You know, they're more, uh, as we say, charming and uh, quirky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then on top of that, also, you know, anyone can go into Pro Tools and create a bass beat or something along those lines. Yeah. And I mean, you can fix anything. Supplement, yeah. Yeah. And, and that's and that's sad, too. Because... And I've been doing that today. I've actually been fixing a bunch of stuff today on Pro Tools, but it's not like we're not cutting live. I mean, we're, we're, we're doing live tracks i mean it's not like we're just manufacturing stuff with a keyboard yeah but we're, we're you know i'm i'm using pro tools hey look you know technology is what it is i mean if it makes it work and it makes more money for you 
you just got to do it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I have nothing against Pro Tools either. Um, you know, I, again, I find it fascinating that, you know, that kind of stuff exists. But, you know, the, the whole idea of the studio musician going to the wayside kind of does suck because, you know, you know, you could have a great, you know, band come in that just needs an extra little kick or a little extra little umph and, you know, and they would bring that in and now they don't get that anymore. And well, the Beach Boys is a perfect example of it being, a, you know, a reverse problem situation where you have a self-contained man of brothers and relatives that, you know, grew up playing and did their first couple of records and played on their own stuff, you know. And then all of a sudden, Brian wants to get to the next level, and he starts bringing in the wrecking crew to play on all the tracks. And so Dennis and, you know, Al and all those guys, they, they didn't really play on anything. You know, they basically sang, which was good, because they were pretty good singers. But, you know, I know Dennis used to get pretty upset because he wanted to play drums on his family, you know, band, you know. Yeah. And it, it did become a little bit of a psychological problem at that time. But they sure made some great records, and, and they made money, and... It supported their tours, and I think after a while they finally realized that it was uh, well worth the sacrifice to, to let a studio guy come in and, and just cut a track real quick. Yeah, I mean, even at one point, the Beach Boys brought in John Stamos to play drums for him. Yeah, <laughs> I, actually, I actually played bass on some um, Beach Boys stuff. They were redoing uh, the first three albums because they'd lost the masters at Capitol Records. All they had were mixes, and they wanted to kind of spruce them up for new digital FM broadcast, blah, 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 and CD. And the bass wasn't very loud because they were mixed for, like, small speakers and cars. So they wanted to have a little more bass response. And so I had to go in with my P bass, which was pretty much the same year as Brian's, and go in and ghost his parts. And they just took the mix and had me play bass over the top of it. And they just sort of mixed me in and made masters like that. But I was sworn to secrecy on those sessions for quite a few years and because, of course, the content of the band and whatnot. And it was a couple of years ago on the Bob Leftist, I, I actually started talking about that. And some guy at Capitol who was like a, one of the archive guys, who goes, no, you never did that. You never played any Beach Boys stuff. I had the masters. I never heard any Beach Boys. I said, look, I was there. I got a double scale session. I was there with the producer, John Palladino. So don't call me a liar. I played bass on Beach Boys records. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Yeah, especially in that band, because there, there was a lot of hostility in that band for a long time. Yeah. So, you know, then you get picked up by Steve, and um, from 82 or 81 to 87, um, yep. you guys were pretty much everywhere. Well, we, we had a hit record, and we did really well in 82 when we toured for it. We went to Europe first, which uh, actually Polygram Mercury broke the record in Europe. Capital didn't do anything here. Uh, it got broken over there because he had another separate deal with uh, those folks out of Amsterdam. And then we, so we went there first. So we actually had a number one record in Europe first. Then the U.S. followed when Capital finally said, well, we got to hit now. I guess we got to promote this record, you know. So it was all about payroll. It was just a bunch of, you know, BS. And, and so by the time it became a hit there, we came over here and toured. But in 83, we just did one little live album or something. I can't remember what we did in 83, but not a lot. And we went back to Europe in 84, did Rock Palace with U2. Who had, they were our opening act in 82, but in 84, they were, you know, actually now the marquee act, which was pretty interesting. So from 82 to 84, we had switched roles, you know, U2 and Steve Norman. It's pretty funny. Uh, but then after that, we just made records. We made a, you know, a record called Living in the 20th Century, 
uh, well, we made it. We made a record called uh, Italian X-rays, which I wrote the first single on. That didn't do anything. Called Shangri-La, and then we did another record called Love in the 20th Century, and that came out around '86. And that had a song called Make the World, World Turn Around. And that, you know, that got a little, I played bass on that, and that got a little, you know, action. But in 87, he just decided he wanted to do something completely different. That's when he went and did this Born to Be Blue album with Ben Sidron, and he used Ben's rhythm section mm -hmm. and went to Minneapolis and uh, did a whole new thing. And that's when I sort of bowed out and I just went in the corporate world and worked with Scotty Page in his studio for a while, and I ended up over at JBL helping to design uh, speakers and, uh, uh, you know, cabinets. And then eventually Rivera guitar amps is what I got involved in. And then went back to Steve in 93 when he did one of my songs called uh, Midnight Train. So that was the history of that whole period of time. Oh, Midnight Train was yours? Uh, Midnight Train was, yeah. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, Midnight Train was yours. Oh, yeah. that's awesome. The guy that's with me right now recording my house, his brother co-wrote that one. That's awesome. That is so fucking cool. Um so, you know, one of the things about, you know, bands that have been around for a long time, you know, um, they lose a lot. People come back, they leave, they come back, or, you know, they leave, whatever. You know, the Steve Miller Band is, has a long list of uh, former musicians that have been part of that band. Yes, and that became um, a problem when we were inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame because they just didn't want to have everybody in the Monkey's Uncle up on stage because it takes forever and they're trying to produce a two-hour TV show, you know. Yeah. So that's the reason why uh, they elected to just uh, induct Steve Miller. They didn't really induct the Steve Miller band, even though we played and we got awards and stuff. It was basically his day in the sun. Uh, and it was unfortunate because there were a lot of guys that had played on the hits that could have been there to enjoy the uh, event, but they just elected not to do that. But that's, you are right. There are a lot of people, many who are still alive that played with Steve that are touring with him nowadays. Yeah. And that's what I was going to ask you. I was going to ask you about the uh, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame thing because I wanted I so I'm, thank you very much for reading my mind there because this is exactly what I was going to ask you about because I've always wondered why he was inducted solo and in, because uh, I couldn't find anything on the internet about it. But thank you very much for telling me that. Um, but yeah, I mean, like you know, because there was a constant rotating door for a while there. It seemed like, and you know, what was the reason behind that too? I mean, was it just Steve well, being you know eccentric yeah, about it? It wasn't Steve's decision. It was the producers. I think uh, Gary Gersh and uh, Tom Hanks and uh, Jan Winter, you know, all the people that sit on the board there. I mean, they just said, you know what? We already got Chicago coming in on this one. And Chicago's is going to have Danny Seraphine and maybe Bill Champlin, who didn't actually was invited. Satara never showed up. So they were planning on having a bunch of folks for that. Deep Purple was inducted. They had a whole bunch of folks that had been in that band over the years. Uh, and so they just, they, they were starting to like, starting to worry about, it was just going to take too much time to get through everything. Cause you know, everybody wants to rob the microphone and sit there for 15 minutes and say hi to their mom and, you know, <laughs> and their school, their school music teacher, you know, and, you know, it just, I think that that was a decision they made. Steve was not really happy about it, but when they, when they said that's the way it was going to be, he just said, well, okay, but I'd like to use them to play with me because they were going to have like Paul Shaver's band play with him or something. And he said, no, 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 no. We're going to have the Steve Miller band play. So we had to really get involved in that. And our manager got involved. And we had to argue to get that point. Then we weren't even going to be allowed on the floor. They were going to have us in some green room. And that was BS. So they finally gave us tables, you know, and then we couldn't invite our wives. And then we finally got our wives in there. I mean, it was just, it was like one thing after the other. We had to keep pushing them, pushing them, you know, so 
finally the band did play live and we got to go and we got to go with our wives and you know, we sat on the floor with everybody else so it was it was fine but it, it was a long bunch of negotiations to get to that point yeah so that being said steve also wanted to have someone else induct him uh and they said no no we choose who inducts you and he was like going what are you talking about i mean i'm not and this guy that he wanted to have induct him i won't mention who it was but it was huge he was a huge guy and uh they said no 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 we're gonna have black keys do it and he was like who were they <laughs> he didn't even know who they were you know and so it was pretty funny so when they met in the hallway the day of the induction i mean he didn't even know who they were and they were kind of butthurt by that and they made a comment on uh, in rolling stone about not being recognized, you know, they got kind of, you know, kind of whiny about it. And I took, I took umbrage with them too. And so some stuff went on to the classic rock, you know, uh, blog sites that, you know, put a little, little tension in there, but I just, you know, I just said, look guys, I mean, you guys are great, but I mean, Steve, just know who you're worth. So don't, don't be hurt, you know? So all those things combined really kind of stuck in Steve's craw. And I won't speak for him, but I know that when they asked him as he, as he was coming out of the, the ceremony and the, the induction, that some reporter said, hey, Steve, how was your experience with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? And he goes, you really want to know? <laughs> and then he told him. And then that went national. Yeah. <laughs> that's crazy. And it's, it's funny that, you know, that kind of stuff happened. I mean, especially with, you know, they're, they're there to honor you. Um, but are they really, you know? Because, I mean, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame always has kind of bugged me. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, it is a business and it is a TV show. And the guys that sit on the board have run it as a business. And so when you buy tickets to go to it, they're ridiculous, like Super Bowl prices just for the stands. And if you want to be on the tables, we're talking 10000 a chair for the cheap seats. And it's like 100000 up front. At least it was when we were doing it. And that was since 2016. So nobody that just wanted to go to it, you know, could really afford it, you know. So all except for the big, the big wigs. And then, of course, when presenters could buy seats, you know, that weren't musicians, they could just go there and have fun, drink wine, and yell and scream. You know, it's like it was a business. And so that's the difference between that and a real, true acknowledgement of art. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly, and. You know, it's it's sad that it's it's like that. Um, yeah, we we live in a capitalistic society. I mean, that's just the way it is. Unfortunately, you're right. You're yeah, we, 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 right. You and I were just crying the blues about Spotify a minute ago. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. That's Where's very. The beef? Where's the beef? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know. I've always wondered this, you know, in a, in a situation like that to where, you know, specifically towards you, you know, you came in, um, after, you know, some of the, the bigger hits that have dropped, you know, like, you know, Joker and, you know, fly like an Eagle and stuff like that. You know, when you were up on stage playing those songs, you know, that you weren't, you know, you weren't a part of at the time, you know, what kind of, what kind of goes through your head when that kind of stuff happens when you're up there playing those songs? Well, I, I'm first of all, I'm very grateful to be, you know, associated with Steve. He was a, you know, an iconic kind of a star guy when I was a kid. You know, his first five albums were, you know, a, a large part of my life. Um, of course, when he came out with the Joker, I was kind of like, 
really? I mean, you know, it's like, you know, it wasn't like bluesy, it wasn't psychedelic. It was just a pop song, you know, but boy, what a pop song. So now when I'm up there, I don't take it for granted because it really has touched a lot of people. And when you see 40,000 people just completely swooning over a song, it, it has an amazing effect on you in terms of uh, just being grateful to be rubbing elbows with that greatness and that, that level of art. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a dream come true. It's one of those gigs that you can't really train anybody or teach them how to get a gig like that. It's just a lottery thing. It's like, it's like the slot machine in Vegas. You just never know. Yeah. Um, like I said, he was looking for material. We had it. We met as peers. When I met Steve, he needed my help. He needed my songs. He needed my production assistance and he needed my guitar parts. So we met as peers. So that was kind of cool. Yeah. Uh, although when I was about 13, and this is a true story, I went to a show to see him, and I think I smoked my first dube in the Sacramento Memorial Auditorium, and I looked at him up on stage, and I thought I got eye contact with him, which of course is ridiculous, and I went, I pointed at him, and I said, you know, one of these days, I'm going to work with you, and like, I, and I had this feeling like I connected, which is really silly, but when we were in Capitol mixing that record, that Abercadabra record, at one point we were sitting there in the studio and I saw him at the board and he was moving the faders. And I thought, and I, and I remember that. It just came back to me and went, oh, yeah, that night. Oh, my God. <laughs> it was like it actually came true. It was weird. I hadn't even thought thinking about it while I was working with him because it was, like I said, we were just peers. I, was, I had a good career as a studio musician. I did not need to be in his band to be doing well in the music business. But in hindsight, I'm glad I did because, like we talked about earlier, the studio musician thing sort of dried up. And even though the pandemic came along prior to the pandemic, we've been doing good business every year. I mean, we had a couple of years, just a couple of years ago with Peter Frampton, two years in a row. We were, you know, rocking good numbers, you know. And then last year with of Marty Stewart, still did good numbers. So we, we're still doing fine live. Um, and we're grateful for that. But uh, like you said, this pandemic thing has just knocked us on our heels. Yeah. Um, not to make a right turn or completely just stop our conversation dead in a halt, but I just got an interesting uh, message from one of my producers. Um, just announced Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. Yeah, I knew that before I came on. Yeah, I must have missed that. Um, yeah. Show I, prep ready. I, really I didn't want to bring it up because I didn't know whether you wanted that on your show or not, but... Yeah, it looks like Handmaid's Tale is right around the corner, you know. Uh, unfortunately, yeah. Um, she was, I mean, you know, controversial, yes, but iconic even more. Um, so, I mean, she was, you know, all about the women's rights and a lot of different things. And, um, you know, she was a, a good, good, good woman. And uh, it's sad to see her pass at 87 years old. Yeah. I mean, she did, she did good. She hung in there as long as she could. Yeah, she did. We're, we're very grateful for her, but I mean, now we're now it's even more important to get out the boat, you know, because it could go really bad. But there, there's the negative part is even before the election, they may start the process. They have to put somebody in her place right now. Yeah, you know, and it's like, gosh, I mean, you know, you know what, what you know what's going to happen with this administration. You know, that's why that's why I mentioned handmaids too. I'm getting ready to put on my little white, you know, bonnet, you know. Yeah. But uh, we'll see. You know, I don't want to be negative, but I mean, I, I know where these folks are headed. Yeah, and, and you know, 
when I'm talking to a you know musician like yourself, I, I try not to get political in any which way. Um, but you know, with her, you know, like I said, she's just so iconic and legendary in her own right. Um, I, I would be uh, remiss not to bring it up. So yeah, um, well, God bless Ruth yeah. Gates Bader, and thank you for your service to the nation. Yeah, absolutely, Ab absolutely. Um, that just sucks. But um, anyway, um, back to the uh, the conversation at hand here. So I mean. You know, I can't stress enough. I mean, you know, the the amount of impact that you know your guys' songs have had on the world is 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 crazy. You know, I mean, you can't go to a bar um, and you know hear a cover band play, you know, without them playing Joker, or you know there you know and it's you know or one of the many many songs that you guys have done over the years. And it's just one of those things where, you know, and, and I've said it before and I'll say it again, you know, music is unity. It's unifying. You know, there's certain songs that you can go anywhere in the world and everybody in the place will know that song. You know, whether it's Journey, whether it's Living on a, pra uh, Living on a Prayer or Joker or Fly Like an Eagle or, you know, the countless songs that are out there that are just... Everybody, you know, regardless of race, creed, religion, whatever, just knows. And yeah. for you to be part of that is, you know, is has got to, you know, bring a feeling to you that you just you can't describe, right? Yeah, like I said, it's a lot of gig, you know. You just never know, and you can't train, you know. People can't tell your students how to get a gig like this. It just happens, you know. And it's like. You know, at one point, I mean, I was thinking, like, why did I give up my studio career and do this thing? He's not even touring. It's like, he's not even making any records. You know, I mean, there was, like, moments where I was just, like, regretting having done it. But in hindsight, over a long period of time, it really was the right choice. And it was like, you know, we, I, I don't take it for granted at all now because it's just like, like you say, it's become an American pastime, if not a global pastime. Mm -hmm. You know, with this catalog. It's all about the catalog with Steve. He's not a big movie star, you know, facial feature, you know, uh, front cover magazine type of guy. He he could actually walk through the venue before we play, and people won't even know he's who he is. They, a lot of folks don't know who he is by, by sight. Yeah. So, and he likes it that way because he can have autonomy and he can, like, be safe. He doesn't have to worry about getting jacked in the alley. You know, I mean, it's like he could go into a mall and people just leave him alone. So that's kind of cool, and that's and his art precedes him, and that's really the, the testament to his greatness. Is his catalog is just astounding, you know? And it's it like is. the catalog is the catalog is the catalog. I always tell me, you know, when you know, what do you do when you go out and play with this band? I go, we go out and service the catalog. That's what we're doing, you know. We're not trying to go out there and be a ham bone or, you know, shake our booty and you know try to be some controversial rock star that's going to, you know. <laughs> have a divorce next week and then have a drug overdose and then be in the headline. We're just out servicing the catalog, you know, and the catalogs become a tapestry part of people's memories of, uh, you know, this nation, this nation and its music history. Absolutely. I wholeheartedly agree with you. So looking back on your, you know, the last 40 years or, you know, 50 years, you know, that you've been in this business, what would you say the greatest period of time was for you? Mm. Well, you know, having my kids is is, is always going to be the, at the top. And uh, like I said, when I took time off from Steve in 87, um, 
not to do the jazz thing, um, I had our we had we had our first child, which is uh, our daughter Sierra, who's you know uh, she's actually uh, an animator and uh, an art director at DreamWorks now. Got a That's show cool. on Netflix. Wow, Archibald's next big thing. It's a kid show, but it's really good, yeah. and we're really really proud of her. But I took a lot of time with her when she was really young, helping her, you know, with her dreams and her fantasy stuff and drawing and art and stuff. I mean, I really put a lot of time into that to, to make sure that she took that with her. And thank goodness, because she actually excelled at arts, not just because of it, but it was because just the way her she was wired. She just wasn't wired to be a doctor, a lawyer, or a housewife, or, you know, a, a bean counter, or a journalist or anything. She was wired to be an artist, a hand-drawn great artist. And uh, she's even been commissioned to do three of Steve's guitars that she hand painted. And um, she's, she's just fantastic. And so that was well worth taking that break. So that was really, really a great time in my life. But prior to her being born, obviously, we had the number one hit record with Abracadabra. I had never had a number one hit record experience. So that was pretty cool. That was when we were in Europe. Uh, that was great. But I've also had some really great experiences uh, you know, working with uh, different artists on different projects and, uh, you know, benefits and things. Uh, I, I just, I just was uh, asked to, I have a Native American ancestry way back, so, and I have Mohawk in me. And uh, a lady that I met in Montana where I have a cabin um, wrote a song about missing and murdered indigenous women, which is called MMIW, which is a thing that a lot of people don't know about it. It's very prevalent in the United States and Canada. And she wrote a song about it called Missing. And uh, I just put a bunch of, I just produced a track that all the guitars, lead guitar stuff and native flute and everything. And we're getting ready to have a video made of that. And that's, you know, that's something that I'm gonna be able to leave behind, you know, for not only my kids who are also part Native American, but, uh, you know, for, you know, the, the people who were the original stewards of this country before we came here and started, you know, fucking it all up. <laughs> Pardon my French, you know, but I mean, we, we, we're trying to be better now, you know, but I yeah. mean, you know, unfortunately, the progressives that I wanted to be in the White House that would have helped Native Americans are not there right now. So we're going to try to see if we can change that. But that that gives me great pleasure. And then also I've done a couple PSA videos about voting in general that are not nonpartisan, that are just, you know, getting out the vote, blah, blah, blah. So I've had a couple of those and I've been inducted in uh, Pennsylvania where my mother's from and I was a legacy to my mother's family there. And I, that's who we're playing for next week, Scotty Page and I and Greg Bissonette and Reggie McBride and, you know, Rob Arthur, we've got Joseph Wooten, we've got Jacob Peterson and, you know, it's, it's gonna be fun. And uh, we're actually working for some people there in the state house. And so, I have a connection there that goes way back because my family had a newspaper there uh, during the turn of the last century and they were prohibitionists of all things, which is kind of interesting. So those all those little family and little personal things that are tied into me and with my art are just as every bit as important to me as, you know, having a hit with Steve and being on stage when 40, 50,000 people are screaming for the Joker. That's pretty nice, you know, because I was a Steve Miller fan. I mean, it, it's, it's kind of like I've transported myself from being the fanboy to being in the rhythm section. You know, it's like it's it, it was a long journey. And uh, so I don't take that for granted, no, no doubt. But there's there's other things, too, that uh, are the best parts of, you know, my life. Um, I hope I didn't get too broad there because I know you wanted like a no, specific... no, it's no, that, that's exactly what I wanted. Um, yeah. You know, because, I mean, this show, 
you know, isn't about, you know, always about just, you know, the, you know, in front of the curtain, it's behind the curtain too. Right. So for you to mention it that way is, is better than any other answer I could have gotten. Cause right. you know, cause you're hundred percent right. You know, back in 2004 or five, when I wrestled my first wrestling match, you know, um, mm-hmm. in front of, you know, 500 people, it, you know, it wasn't the fact that, you know, oh crap, I'm, you know, was trained by one of the greatest wrestlers of all time. It wasn't the fact that I'm wrestling in front of 500 people my first time. No, it was my daughter. My wife was up in the crowd watching this happen and, you know, dealing with the last year of my life of driving back and forth because we lived in Orlando at the time, driving back and forth to Ocala four times a week to go get beat up by Dory Funk Jr. You know, um, and so I I feel that, you know, that's, you know, or the first time I ever did comedy, having my wife just almost piss herself from laughing so hard that it wasn't, it wasn't about the people. It wasn't, it was about my wife being there and laughing. And yeah. so I know, trust me, that's, that is a fantastic answer because it's, it's the truth. Yep. That's great. Well, it's interesting uh, that you mentioned the wrestling part because I, I had an interview about two weeks ago with a gentleman that had a podcast and he was a former wrestler. Actually, he was, I think, a cage fighter. Now He's an MMA fighter. Yeah. Um, that's uh, Keith. Yeah. I'm good friends yeah, with Keith. Keith so yeah. you know, okay. So that was interesting. Uh, but he was, he was really cool, too. It was fun. I've had some really interesting interviews. And once again, I want to ma- thank Eileen uh, uh, Shapiro, is it Shapiro? Right. Shapiro, yeah, yeah. For introducing us, and uh, you know, she's been just you know giving me all kinds of opportunities to do uh, interviews, which is great because you know usually when I'm out touring this time of year, I don't have the time because you know, I'm just ripping from pillar to post. Yeah. So this was good. So I was able to like meet a lot of new people and do this. So this is a fun part of my life too. Yeah. And it just started to open up that um, I'm able to express myself and do it in such a way to where I'm not just doing a bunch of typing on Facebook and. You know, Facebook's really funny because you got a lot of people who want who want it their way. It's kind of like Burger King. You know, they, they just want sunsets, kittens, and recipes. You know, it's like you try to say something about politics, and they all go, "I'm going to unfollow him right now." Right, and then you you lose them as a as a follower. So your database starts to shrink because you've expressed yourself. You know, yep. And this gives me the opportunity to express myself without feeling you know like I have to worry about offending somebody. Oh, it's I, your show. It's not mine. <laughs> yeah, and they do want it their way. You know, again, it's about you know kittens and food and memes you know like yeah. if i if i post you know i have thirteen thousand people on my my instagram if i post something about the the show that i'm doing for the night you know just letting everybody know hey i have this guest on i barely get a reaction but i post a, a funny dirty joke in, in a meme form people blow it up and then it goes it goes viral and it's like i'm not a you know meme guy i'm a, I'm a podcast host i'm a, I'm a stand-up comedian you know can we, you know, enjoy the content that I produce, not just ripping off some meme and just posting it on here? I mean, it's weird. You want to say hi? This is my daughter, Kendra. She's also an artist and a musician, and uh, she's... Uh, Hello. She's Hello. Too. That's, that's Derek. His, his show is called Suck It. So uh, <laughs> you can say now that you've been on Suck It. Oh, okay. That's... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you tell you all your friends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, uh, yeah, she's an artist too. She's uh, going back to school right now at uh, Micah and out of Baltimore, and she's got an illustration career she's pursuing. So she's going to be another artist, you know. So you know, oh, she's going to she's in Baltimore. It's so great that she's come home to visit us because I've been able to spend some some quality time with her as well. So again, that's a part of the really great things that have been happening in my life, not just being in the Steve Miller. 
Of course. Yeah, I mean, being a dad, being a family man is always you know, number one. Yep. Yep. And I need her to help trim my sales and improve me because I'm a work in progress. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, man, let me just tell you what. Um, again, it was such an honor to speak to you tonight. And um, thank you. You know, you know. So, you know, what do you have coming? Coming up soon. What do you? I know you said you were doing some stuff with Scott well, Page. The only stuff that I do. I'm also a novelist. I have a novel that's on Amazon right now called uh, Skeleton Dolls, Children of the Tower, and it's kind of a Dan Brown, Stephen King kind of a thing. I, I've had it up for a couple of years now. I self-published it. It's doing very well. It gets great reviews. So if anybody wants to buy that, it's uh, on Kindle and hard copy. Um, and then there's also uh, a, a sequel for it that I'm shopping around right now, trying to get. Uh, you know, an agent and uh, a publisher for that. I've had, uh, you know, Netflix and some people at Amazon Prime look at it for possibly doing a series because it's a trilogy and I've got, it's, it's a huge books, but it's about, you know, uh, twin females that speak in twin speak. And if you Google twin speak, you'll find out that sometimes twins speak in their own language. Correct. That nobody understands. And uh, these girls took it into their adult life and uh, used it and there's power in it. And they were able to raise the dead and heal people. And we find out that it's actually the original language of God that existed prior, prior to the Tower of Babel being destroyed in the Old Testament. So if you read anything about the Old Testament in the, in the Torah, it's, it's pretty interesting because that's when, you know, we built this big giant building supposedly and God got mad and says, hey, you're trying to be like me, you can't do that. And he knocks down this building and it confuses the language is prior to the Tower of Babel, we supposedly all spoke the same language, and we could speak directly to God. We'd say, God, you'd say, what? You know, I mean, that's what it says, you know. So there's power in that language, and of course, it was used all the way up to the time of the legends of Merlin, who was able to use that for, you know, power in, in his warfare as in the Celtic um, society. So anyway, that's that book. Uh, but I also, you know, uh, am working on uh, several music projects. Um, and like I mentioned, this thing missing, and... Uh, you know, I have a record that I'll probably be coming out with shortly that'll be more uh, newer stuff. But my, I have a, a jazz guitar album on CD Baby called New Vintage. It's kind of a smooth jazz thing that was going on when smooth jazz was popular. It's another facet of me that a lot of people don't know, but I don't just play rock and roll. I can play jazz. So uh, that's an interesting product that you can buy. But uh, things that are coming up, uh, you know, I'm probably going to be, you know, this YouTube channel is going to be interesting. Because I'll be doing like, you know, like I said, I'll be doing kind of like what Leland's been doing. I'll be doing some master class type lessons, but I'll also be doing, you know, cooking, fishing, some philosophy, you know, engineering, songwriting, um, you know, just like fishing, you know, working on guitars, you know, all that stuff. Because I am a luthier as well. So, you know, hopefully I can attract, you know, some, some subscribers and get some ad banners. There you go. Um, ad banners are always fun. <laughs> so that's pretty much it. Well, that's just, again, um, it's been an honor speaking to you tonight. Um, you know, and, uh, I, I can't, you know, I, I knew about the book. Um, I didn't realize it was that and I gotta go now. I gotta go pick it up and read it. Um, yeah, really, sounds... if you like, if you like kind of like fantasy sci-fi kind of books, this is really good. It's, yeah. it's, I think you'll really enjoy it. And it's based on a true story. The first 10 chapters are all based on a true story. So it's kind of cool that way. Um, you can also go to my website, KennyLeeLewis.com, and send me an email anytime to say hi. Okay. Absolutely. Um, but again, you know, it, it's been fantastic talking to you tonight. And yeah, uh, I can't wait to see what, you know, you do next. Like I said, I'm going to pick up that book um, right away. 
and uh, I can't wait to see what the, the second book comes out as too. Yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's, it's it's a trilogy. This is the second one. The third one's up here in my head, but I haven't written it yet. But it's going to be, it'll be the apocalyptic one. Nice. <laughs> it'll, it'll be the Fury Road one. It's pretty fun. There you go. Um, but again, man, you have a wonderful rest of your night weekend. Um, stay safe throughout this whole thing. And um, and like we said earlier, get out and vote. Absolutely. Regardless right. of your affiliation, get out and vote. Thanks. I'm going to make a couple pizzas now. <laughs> yeah, have fun with that. <laughs> but uh, you again, have a great one of your night. Um, and uh, I'll hope to talk to you again soon. You too. And best to your wife and family. Thank you, sir. You have a wonderful day. All right. Kenny Lee Lewis, you know, author, musician, and family man. Just fantastic. What a great week it has been here. Holy shit. Just fantastic. I can't, I can't complain. Cannot complain. Um, thank you, everybody, that has been here tonight and all week long. I appreciate you. Um, again, regardless of your party affiliation or whatever the case might be, you know, um, it, it, this isn't this. This crosses party lines. It's you know, you know. Rest in peace, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, she was a fantastic woman. Regardless of your affiliation, again, it's not a party thing. It's not a political thing. It's a it's a person's life who's, you know, did a service for our country. Bottom line. Um, so my heart goes out to her and her family. You know, and um, again, you know, regardless again of your party affiliation. This just goes to show you, you know, get out and vote. Get out and vote this November. We're less than two months away, and that's important. But that is all for tonight. Come back Monday, 12 p.m. East, 9 a.m. West, for the Mental Health Hour with Cat Daniels. And then Monday night, I think I have two guests. So I think I'm, next week I'm going to be doing it um, at 7 o'clock to make sure I can get both guests on. Um, but next week is filled crazy. Um, and I'll announce it over the weekend. But until Monday, stay safe, stay healthy, and as always, stay fucking heavy. We'll see you Monday. Peace.